welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm your host, Stephanie, and today I am joined by author Gemma Amore to talk about motherhood and horror. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I feel like we've we've been trying to set this up for a while and, and circumstances have been against me, so I'm really happy that I'm finally here. <laughs> I'm happy you're finally here too, and this is... Uh, such a good topic and there's there's so much meat to this topic Mm -hmm. there is and and it's interesting that it's a theme that I think I come back to again and again in my own fiction and and in the fiction that I consume and obviously even before I had children actually I was always perhaps because of issues in my own childhood and with my own mother like that relationship I think particularly with girls and their mothers as well it can be very complicated and very strained in some ways and very intense in other ways. And so, yeah, it's definitely been something that I've explored in fiction again and again. And I, I imagine I will continue to do so because um, yeah. motherhood covers such a broad spectrum of feelings and emotions and facets of like humanity, everything yeah. from bad mother to good mother. Um, oh. Yeah. Absolutely. I was going to say, as I was kind of breaking down, like, because it's so broad, like we could do separate episodes on different facets of motherhood and horror. I was thinking, like, I don't know if I want to do like the horrors of having a bad mom. But as I was reading these books, I'm like, that is a part of it a lot of the time. It is a lot of it. It's, It's that generational trauma as well that I think we don't talk about a lot where it's not necessarily just that you had a bad mother or a bad role model and that certainly does play into it in a lot of these stories but um it's like the idea that certain generations weren't comfortable being compassionate or talking about emotions and feelings and how that then manifests in you as a child when you then become an adult and you struggle with certain things and Mm -hmm. other things like how (laughs) and I think about this a lot how acceptable corporate punishment was when I was a kid Um, smacking and hitting and and punitive punishment and shame and all of those things that were just generational back then that aren't so much now. Um, And the damage, I think, that that's done on a a wide swathe of kind of the millennial generation, certainly. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's then when you combine that with the sort of complexities of being female being a woman expectations that differed generation generationally as well from mother to daughter and so on there's just so much there like you said there's so much meat to you could write a dozen stories about motherhood and come up with a different angle every single time um yeah. which which is what i love about the topic in general but also it makes me feel kind of squirrely <laughs> whenever i read one that really nails it <laughs> There is that that vulnerability that like, oh, I'm I'm seen, but it's also like I feel I feel validated, but also like you see me. Yeah. yeah. Or you have a completely different reaction where you come across a mother infection or in a movie or whatever. And you're like, oh, my God, no, yeah. it just like this is so opposed to everything in me and my values. And but then you start to question yourself. You're like, well, actually, because when you become a parent, you then assess everything that you were given as a child from your parents and then when you see other parent figures in media you you stop like 
it's the same whenever you see a movie now or if I see a movie now where violence towards children is is a part of the narrative right before I had children I was able to be just a spectator and watch that now whenever I watch anything like that or try and consume it I'm I'm it's too personal I'm too close to the topic like I can't just be a spectator I'm like an an active participant in that story because I'm constantly thinking what would I do in this situation or if this was my child or you know it's it's so I'm not implying that if you don't have children you can't access those themes and relate to them and stuff but there's something that's happened in me personally since I had a kid that stops me from being able to just sit back and and view things and read things and actually I kind of have to like secondhand experience them whenever I'm reading or watching which makes it really grueling sometimes (laughs) like yeah I remember after I had my daughter like I I was reading a few books that had like pregnancy related like body horror labor stuff and I was like I can't do it or like harm to babies which I think was something maybe I was a little more jaded to before having kids no I'm like "Ah, it's pregnancy in particular is still a really bad one for me like I just can't I can't any kind of pregnancy related horror like I I watch it um uh, it gets me on such a visceral level because actually that's a whole nother topic in itself like body horror and pregnancy and childbirth and all of that stuff um absolutely is, is a big conversational topic which I almost like shy away from because I'm I've never wanted to be the sort of person that would potentially frighten somebody else who is in the early stages of that journey um but I also find that it's not spoken about a lot and not very honestly from woman to woman in general I think perhaps because part of us is afraid of not wanting to fear monger um and put our own experiences onto others but also because it's everybody's experience is so intensely personal and different um and traumatic so we don't really want to talk about it <laughs> it it absolutely is and i mean with pregnancy i feel like i don't know maybe the way i grew up i feel like there was a narrative that like this was the right way to mm have a pregnancy and Mm -hmm. give birth and maybe you were a coward if you took a Mm -hmm. different way um out of it and i I don't know there's no easy way to go through a pregnancy there's no easy way to give birth like a c-section is still hard you still have to heal from that c-section is incredibly hard hard. it's (laughs) it's a major operation that's what always makes me laugh they're like oh you had a people you know the narrative around having your belly sliced open and then that's somehow not being indicative of you trying hard enough or giving birth properly. And you're like, can I swear on here? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, bitch, somebody sliced me open, man. That's yeah. like, I had a major operation. This is the mm-hmm. most, I don't know. There's so much we could get into. There's so much. Yeah. This entire but, topic yeah. is, it's such a huge one. Like you say, it's. Yeah. Yeah. As I was like breaking it up into sections, I'm like, there's this, these could there's be too much. <laughs> um, but yeah, I had, I had epidural with both of mine and the first one took, and I mean, epidural is a spinal tap that you're right. getting. It's like a whole yeah thing. Um, and the first one took and the second one only numbed half of my body. Oh my, like my, gosh, my that... right side. So my left side felt <sighs> all of my innards just clenched when you said that like (laughs) ah like oh the whole yeah and the whole idea yeah 
There's no easy way. There's no easy way. And actually, interestingly, a lot. I know this is completely like off topic now from books and movies, but like so many women are sort of taught before they give birth that that giving into any sort of pain relief is not the right way, like you Mm -hmm. said. And I actually ended up waiting three days before I had an epidural um, in an in an induced labour, and by that point I was nearly dead. Um, And it's ridiculous. And if I could go back and do it now, I would just like instantly just give me that stuff um i i do always remember that the the mild comedy moment in my horrific experience of giving birth was finally signing the paper that said yes i consent to having having this spinal tap and uh i had a moment where i looked up and i like i had been in labor for like three days and i was completely naked and i was just covered in every fluid under the sun and i was sweaty and my bits were hanging out and the epidural ist walked in and he was on god's green earth the most handsome man i've ever seen in my entire life it was like he walked in and there was a halo of light behind him and like angels were singing (laughs) it was just this like amorphous blob screaming on the bed covered in all of my own juices and i was like why why now (laughs) do you remember that most handsome anesthesiologist (laughs) and uh yeah so I hope I never run into him again. <laughs> I mean, there's so much. And I mean, I know you said you, a lot of your work deals with motherhood, but I think um, your book that came out last year, I think probably most plainly deals with the subject of motherhood, full immersion. Sure. And it was one of our top books of last year. It was one of Rachel's favorites. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Rachel has been doing a wonderful job um, talking about that book on her YouTube channel and on your podcast. And um, and, and actually, I'm immensely grateful for that because I think, so yes, it is an extremely personal book and it deals directly with the theme of motherhood and uh, mothers who struggle with postnatal issues. And I think by default of that being the most honest book, because it's essentially an autobiography in many ways, it's been quite inaccessible for a lot of my normal readers. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, I write horror, I write in the genre and I write serial killers and ghosts and spooky things and monsters and and they're always rooted in a very human theme and they're always about people at heart but this one in particular wasn't overtly a genre piece it was a blend of many different genres and it wasn't really about the horror it was about my experience first and foremost and I think that actually made it one of those books where people they bought it, which I'm incredibly grateful for, but they've just put it to one side until they're ready, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm finding that people now are starting to, they've had it for months and months, but they're only starting to pick it up now and get into it. And I do understand um, it's not an easy book. It, it It's, you know, I sort of affectionately call it... <laughs> you know it's about miserable women's shit which I always use it to describe if anybody asks which is doing it a bit of a disservice really but um it is a an exploration of uh postnatal issues um intrusive thoughts uh, motherhood and what that looks like and what it looked like for me particularly when my son was very young um and just the damage that can be done to you as a new mother without the right support um, and also, I wanted to break open this 
kind of recurring myth that postnatal depression is something that you have when babies are very young. Um, you know, the, the, the stereotype that you often see in movies of the kind of raving lunatic woman who can't go near her child, who is aggressive towards her child, who can't touch it, who abandons their baby. You know, yes, a lot of postnatal issues do rep- come out in that way, but there's a much more insidious form of it where you can function as an adult, as a mother, as a parent in every way except mentally and emotionally. Um, and what often happens when you have a kid is you you sort of lock yourself and your own needs away in a box for a good number of years because you're in survival mode and you're trying to keep your baby happy and fed and alive and you don't you don't look at yourself and how you're feeling at all. You just don't have any time or energy or capacity. So often what happens is when your kid starts to get a little bit older, a bit more self-sufficient, suddenly these issues rear up as they did with me and then they take over and, and I, I, I was personally very poorly for for a, a, about an 18-month period, which is all a bit foggy for me, um, when my kid sort of was about two until yeah, until he went to school at four, uh, which is when I sort of started the healing process. So it's it's I think there are a lot of women out there who have young children who are perhaps not able to recognise what they're struggling with is postnatal um, mm-hmm. by in nature, that it isn't normal to feel the way that they feel. That it, you know, yes, having kids is hard, but uh, at what point does it become something that you need to attend to medically? Um, yeah. And so I wanted to just write a little bit more about that, about how you can be okay on the surface and be functional, but underneath everything is just dying and breaking down and going wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So you said with people kind of discovering it now, not discovering it, but you know, they've had it and they're finally in a place where they can read it. Have they reached out to you about being seen with the work? I've had, um, I've had some wonderful messages from women who, and from men actually, um, whose partners have been going through the same thing. Um, I have had some messages from people who said, I've never read a written description of it that accurately summed up how I felt as as I did with this book which to me means everything because there's a certain amount of tawdriness associated with like I guess the act of monetizing your own trauma and turning it into a novel that you sell you know like I I really struggled with whether or not this book should even sort of see the light of day. I originally just wrote it for myself as a kind of form of therapy, ironically. And, you know, I really grappled with, I guess the like internal ethics of whether or not I should have sold it to a traditional publisher and I essentially kind of made money out of my own pain. But then I also figured, well, it's my pain. Why not? <laughs> I might as well make it work for me. But, you know, the, the main reason I wanted that story out there was because I felt like it was something that we needed to have a conversation about and that that we need to speak about much much more widely than we do and like we were saying earlier there are so many aspects of motherhood and pregnancy and childbirth and everything that follows and everything that goes before that just don't get spoken about in a kind of wide widely accepted way um, and I, I, I'm, I'm sad about that because I, I feel like people's experiences could be better 
if we had more honest conversations about these things, even if they are uncomfortable conversations. So, yeah, I've had some really lovely messages from people. Um, I've had some pretty decent critical reviews as well, which has been nice for me. Um, It's my first traditionally published book. So it's the first time I had a publicist working on it and it was going out to the kind of literary outlets that I've never really gone near before as a self-published and indie author. Um, and there's something really gratifying about getting a review in literary journal or, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's nice because it's sort of your ego doesn't need it. But like the sense of imposter syndrome that comes up on you when you're launching your debut, like traditionally published novel and you see it on a shelf in a bookshop or whatever. There's a huge sense for me of imposter syndrome. So those reviews and that reception really helped with that. Like, you know, it was it, it really helped me to go on and write the next book which is is an ongoing struggle but <laughs> yeah <laughs> I can see that I mean that's a lot but I mean yeah. speaking of your next book <laughs> yeah so yeah you announced yesterday was it I mean I, I thought did. I had seen you hint to it before but I don't know if yesterday was the like official announcement for the once yellow house yes so um I sneakily launched a new book yesterday, the ebook version of it, and the paper book, paperback version is like imminent as we speak. And it's something I've been working on a, a, on for a while with Cemetery Gates Media, who are a wonderful indie publisher who's just going from strength to strength. And I've had a relationship with them since I first really started in this gig back in sort of 2018. Um, and it's a novel called The Once Yellow House which was supposed to be a novella and has bloated into a bit of a small novel. Um, And it's, yeah, it's interesting having done the traditional side of things. This was really nice for me to return to a time frame of like less than six months where I could just bash out a novel and, and then we hit publish and then it's live within like the hour, you know, and I love that immediacy and Traditional publishing is lovely as well, but it it can take like two years from signing contract to it hitting the shelves. And that's a long old lead time. Um, so this was nice, a nice return back to like that kind of snappy, fast, bish, bash, bosh yeah. style of publishing that I love. And I love indie for that. Um, and yeah, it's um, an epistolary horror thing, collection of fictional first-hand accounts of a notorious massacre that takes place at a house called sort of locally known as the once yellow house, which, um, which is a, um, a play on a property called the yellow house where Vincent van Gogh, uh, once stayed in France when he was very poorly. Um, and I won't spoil too much about it because it's, one of those books that I started writing that turned into something completely different by the end. But it's about the colour yellow <laughs> and art and horror and a cult Ooh. and a subtly a subtle exploration of the nature of abuse in relationships, because that seems to be the only thing I can ever write about. Um, and it's, it, yeah, it's a bit of a departure for me and I really had fun writing it. It was... There's lots of like illustrations and footnotes and little things that I've put in there that just were interesting for me to research. And as a writer, interesting for me to try and piece together like a bit of a jigsaw puzzle. Um, 
and it's like most things I write, it's not a beginning, middle and an end. It's sort of something the reader has to kind of put together themselves. Because uh, I don't I don't believe in like patronising the reader to the point we have to lead them by the hand through every single page. I think having a little bit of a puzzle to solve is not a bad thing sometimes, yeah. like in that kind of House of Leaves style or um, okay. the, the other one, the J.J. Abrams book, the one about the ship, the Theseus or something like that, I want to yeah. say. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm drawn to books where you have to try a little bit harder. <laughs> I mean, there's a satisfaction in that as a reader too, yeah. being a part of the feeling like you're a part of the story and like yeah well this is um so um I asked Eric LaRocca to write the foreword for this because he is like the master of epistolary fiction and and actually we were on a panel together at StokerCon last year talking about epistolary fiction I think with with Gemma Files as well if I remember rightly and one of the things we both discovered was that the reason we love and we're drawn to that particular form of fiction is because it feels really illicit it feels like you are having access to somebody's private thoughts Mm -hmm. that you shouldn't be Um, and that makes you immediately feel a little bit more invested but also quite uncomfortable Um, and and interestingly that sort of segues into one of the books I think we've got for for this interview which is um, we need to talk about Kevin, which is yeah. one of the the most obvious forms of epistolary fiction. I think that that starts you off down one path, then you figure out what's going on, and then all of a sudden there's like a few gut punches at the end where you just didn't see it coming. Well, I didn't, um, and it and the whole thing feels so grimy and sad and illicit, like I said, and like you're getting this first uh, like first hand view of somebody's life falling apart that you shouldn't have access to and shouldn't be witness to but you are and you can't really help being dragged along in the story um and I love that kind of fiction I love it so much I just think it's really compelling and I think that's why I've been drawn so much to, to like no sleep and you know all of that kind of format of storytelling because it feels real and believable and like it could yeah. happen to you so I love that. I love epistolary fiction. You're right. There is like an, an intimacy yeah. in that. Yeah. I mean, as I was breaking this down, like there was so many, I have like the horrors of pregnancy, which we talked about. There's the sure. horrors of having a responsibility over a child and what that child will become and how much do you blame yourself for yeah. what that child becomes, which I think is a yeah. perfect encapsulation of we need to talk about Kevin. It really. So the thing about this book is that, like we were saying before, the experiences, I've, I read it three times now. The first time I read it in my 20s and it blew me away, um, I think just because the story was so horrifying, because the reveals were so horrifying, because the the the, the sense of voice was actually really one of the strongest senses of character that I've ever come across in a book up until that point um and and also because the woman is really unlikable in Mm -hmm. many many ways but I mean that kind of ties into Leonel Shriver herself who is (laughs) a slightly we won't get into that but you know (laughs) characters especially women this expectation that we all have to be likable the whole goddamn time it's exhausting to me because a lot of male characters in fiction are not likable like if you if you read the road by Cormac McCarthy the dad's a douchebag in that but he's also a douchebag in survival mode and he cares about his kid like you don't have to be an outwardly charming likable 
nice human being yeah. to be a, a protagonist in a, in a story where the worst is expected to happen around you. So I read it before I had a baby. And then for some bizarre reason, I had this desperate urge to read it while I was pregnant. Oh. And I think it's because I sort of secretly knew I was having a boy. Um, that I'd seen the scan and I'd seen the obvious signs that I was having a boy. And it wasn't like public knowledge, but I knew I was having a boy. I just intuition and seeing the scan and whatever. And I <laughs> decided to torture myself by reading this this book again. And oh my God, it hit differently as as the kind of mother of a boy. Um because you're right, like the weight of responsibility the character felt for the behaviour of her child, even though objectively on paper she did everything that she could to be a good mother and she tried with him, the fact that she couldn't connect and she couldn't reach him and the outcome of that mm-hmm. and the alienation he obviously felt throughout his entire life growing up um, yeah. and how her personality played off of his and so like the whole like where do you apportion blame in that scenario and her full acceptance of that and the way that she's shunned by society after what happens happens and so on it's just there's so much in there that that horrified me yeah and made me deeply deeply sad as well particularly because she has two children in the novel and the bond she has with her second child, who is a, a girl, is so completely different and soft and natural. And it's how it should be for her. And she finally gets an experience of how motherhood should feel, you know, according to all the things she's ever been told. And that's taken away from her. And she's, and you know, it's just, there's so much there. It's such a fucking tragic novel in so many levels. And it's so well done. And it's so brilliantly written. Oh, um, absolutely. I mean, yeah. we'll talk. I think that's one of your picks. So I have, I have, yeah. I have a lot to say. Yeah. Then, have you seen the movie adaptation? I have, yeah. Um, and I, I have to say, I think Tilda Swinton like nailed it. She um, absolutely nailed it, and just yeah, she was exactly how I envisaged the character in my head. I think. Yeah, she she really did capture exactly how I had pictured Ava, and I mean, maybe it was. A little foretelling of Ezra Miller, but right, yeah. I, again, I wasn't gonna like. <laughs> it's so hard to not go into like other people's personalities, but like, oh, how can yeah. you not with everything that he has become? And maybe there's a maybe there's a reason why he was able to portray that character so well on screen. I don't know. Maybe there's something there. He, sorry, they they resonated with. Mm-hmm. Um, beg your pardon, and uh, yeah, it's just there's so much there, isn't there? <laughs> in all of it uh, yeah well it was also just such a beautiful movie and yeah. I mean I don't know I, I think it would just be interesting if you're like an intro to film teacher to talk about like color theory and like the movie the color red and that right, I was gonna talk about yeah, yeah the color grading in that is is beautiful from start to finish because there's also a lot of blues that like seep in and and it's just cleverly done and yeah it's like everything in her life afterwards is just really pallid and gray and blue and bleak and dreary. And it's, yeah, it's such a, it's, it's a good film. It's such a good film. It's a horrible film, but it's also a beautiful film. Like you said. 
Uh, I mean, there's there's a ton of movies we could talk about, but I, I don't know. I also have it. My doc is the the Google doc is a representation of my brain. It is like I have subheadings that I don't have subheadings. It is just a jumbled mess. Um, so I have that under that, but I also have under motherhood. We have the horrors of losing yourself or a loss of identity. Um, I think a lot of, well, I think a few of the books that I've picked kind of fall under that. And then we talked earlier, the horrors of like having a toxic mother. Yeah. And then we have those fears of possibly the fear of repeating the cycle. Yeah. And becoming your, your own parent, which I think is inevitable (laughs) as much as you try hard for it not to be. (laughs) Oh man. Well, what were some other movies featuring motherhood and horror there is a really interesting one from the 50s and the name has just gone straight out of my head but it in it stars um oh my god she's like an axe wielding oh my god what's it called this is gonna be really embarrassing i need to look it up i think it's joan collins not joan collins She's an axe murderer, and it's really interesting because she's basically jealous of her daughter's marriage. Oh, what the hell is it called? Oh, there we go. What's it? It's Joan Crawford, Straight Jacket. Oh, okay. There we go. So I'm Joan not familiar with this. Joan Crawford in Straight Jacket, and um, so Joan Crawford plays this kind of, I guess, uh, older mother figure who's quite glamorous in many ways and she obviously still cares about her appearance and how she's perceived and comes across but the the main thrust of the narrative is this younger couple and I forget whether it's her daughter or her son either way there is a a younger woman in the farm and Joan Crawford's character becomes insanely jealous of their relationship Um, And it's about kind of mothers being displaced, I believe, and also jealous. Um, And the end result is that she goes on a bit of an axe murdering rampage. (laughs) And and it's such an interesting film. Like visually, it's a really interesting film. But the themes that it explores about that toxic motherhood, Mm -hmm. it's very much in line with Psycho. Um, The kind of... um, is it Blotch who wrote Psycho? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The the idea of again exploring this kind of nagging, intrusive, overbearing mother that had such a poor influence on you that you then, you know, horrible, violent things ensue. Yeah. And um, yeah. So I, I would say that's a, that's those two are good honourable mentions. I'll have to check that one out. I was not familiar with that one. Um, I have the bad seat on here. I do have a soft spot for the bad seat, (laughs) Um, which is another like, how much do you blame yourself for an evil child? And I mean, if you've read the book, it kind of brings up this novel idea of like nature versus nurture and like the adults Mm -hmm. are having like their neighbors over and having this like big psychological discussion of like, oh, they're saying like, actually... Yeah, there's a big debate going on over what it is. And then as you learn more about the mother and she kind of discovers like, oh, maybe there is something in my nature. And yeah, I passed this on to yeah. my child and the problem is me. Yeah. It's very interesting. Also, Rhoda Penmark, icon <laughs> in the worst way. <laughs> that that nature versus nurture thing, I... Like if you if you listen if you're like me and you listen to billions of true crime podcast episodes every weekend, which I really need to stop doing, 
um because it doesn't make me sleep very well but like it's so interesting to me that some some of these some people that grow up to do horrific things like horrific things can actually have quite good upbringings and they can have quite loving mothers who who go on to defend them right until the end and stand by them even though their children have done these horrendous things but the difference between that and then people who have obviously grown up in a really abusive environment like there seems to be no answer to the question of nature versus nurture like obviously yeah if you're a child subjected to abuse there is a very good chance that you will then go on to act that out somehow but there are also many children subjected to horrendous parenting who grew up to not do that you know yeah. it's such a weird I mean, dichotomy yeah, day we haven't it's not cut and dry it's not is it and it's so interesting because like psychologists behavioralists are all fascinated with this nature versus nurture thing but there seems to be no definitive it's one way or the other um yeah it's i don't know just want to know who to blame i guess yeah i think that's it isn't it it's accountability which is the whole point of not the whole point but it's the whole when you become a parent everything becomes the language of accountability and then guilt yeah um guilt's another one that i was going to talk about as well with motherhood because it's like somebody flicks a switch the second you give birth you're suddenly just guilty about everything yeah um and how that comes out in different ways as well i think is interesting this just reminds me of another jude ellison wrote a book called like dead blondes and bad mothers okay no i've not heard of that um so he got into like the different portrayals and it's it's essentially like the three ways that like women are perceived and it's like you know like the the vixen the crone mm-hmm. and the hag but it, he has a whole chapter on evil mothers and how like even with serial killers and like ed gein and stuff like this we still find a way to bring their mothers into this mm. and somehow still blame it and blame them women. i mean ed gein is a really good example of like the complexity of the relationship he had with his mother where for a good long stretch of time, he sort of kind of idolized her, but also hated her. It was yeah. a really odd and and very inappropriate connection. Um, and how much of that was driven by her and how much can you blame her for his deeds? And, you know, it's like you said, it's like somebody needs to be, there needs to be a fault. Yeah, There always needs to be a fault. I also, I also, one of the things we haven't touched on, which is really interesting to me, it's a bit of a a kind of tangent but I wonder how much of like that whole period of time of the the persecution of women and mothers as witches is tied in with motherhood and themes of motherhood and responsibility and accountability and you know what I mean like just there's a lot of blame apportioned to women throughout history particularly in that period of time Um, almost like we're looking for an excuse to blame women for other people's behaviors yeah as a form of kind of coercion or control and 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 we take on a lot of that blame we really mm-hmm. do in many insidious kind of daily ways oh, and absolutely. and i i don't think that's often explored a lot yeah. um that kind of assumed guilt i mean i try not to bring my religious trauma into every episode <laughs> i really don't but I mean, that's a lot of the way when you're deep into especially the sect of religion I was in, you know, women are blamed for men's discretions. Often. Right. It's I, just... 
I think something we need to add to this list is a, a film I've literally just seen called Women Talking, um, which hit me like a like a dozen punches to the face. Um, it's 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 at once a very beautiful and slow kind of exposition piece, almost like a stage play. And on the other hand, it's this horrible, violent, visceral the things that happen to these women and who then uh, who then go on to sort of rationalize and debate in a very calm and genteel manner the the incredibly awful things that are done to them in the name of religion but also just toxic masculinity well, not mm-hmm. even toxic masculinity violent masculinity I, yeah. I think the word toxic's overused sometimes when men are just being violent towards women yeah. um you know and the rape and abuse and and then you know worst things that happen in that film are explored so wonderfully by a collection of women who are all mothers or or should have been um or their children you know female children who will grow up in theory to be mothers themselves particularly by the laws of this like um Mm -hmm. uh, religion so it's 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 an incredibly tough movie to sit through i found um but a really important one just for the way it's handled. It's, it's handled beautifully. It's uh, yeah, it, it, it will stay with me for a while. Like, like we need, to, we need to talk about Kevin will, it'll stay with me for a long while. It's on my to watch list, but I'll bump it up. Yeah. You, you, you need to be in the right frame of mind. Okay. Um, and if there are, if you're somebody that needs to read the content warnings before then do, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. But, I mean, from what I know about it, I think that yeah makes sense. Um, I think one of the big ones too in recent memory, the Babadook. Yes, yeah, that's the one that people traditionally talk yeah. about. I think when you you when do you your sort of yeah motherhood, motherhood and horror, and and for good reason. Um, it's an interesting one for me because it's it's about a mother struggling with a with a son who's acting out because of grief, and she's struggling with her own grief. And the grief is sort of uh, manifests as this creature, the Babadook. It's an interesting one for me because at the end of the film, she doesn't vanquish the beast or like Mm -hmm. defeat it. She kind of just learns to live with it. It becomes another child, you know, like a bait, a child that's locked up in the basement that she feeds. But she, because she comes to terms with this grief and with these feelings by just accepting that they're a part of her now. And I find that a really interesting exploration of a lot of things that happen to you when you become a mother. Like you were talking about loss of identity. Mm -hmm. At some point when you're a mum, you learn to let go of that old version of you. Like you fight it for a lot of years. You want to get it back. You want that old, you know, you want your old figure back. You want your old carelessness back you want your old sense of humor back and all these things but they ain't coming back because <laughs> you've changed you've been through one of the most radical physical and emotional changes of your entire life and you've got a kid and you've got responsibilities and everything in your life has shifted and so learning to accept that is a big part of motherhood and it's it's one of the most difficult parts that I found to to accept was that that old version of me was never coming back um but it's okay because the new version of me, I'm now, you know, I have accommodated and I've I've locked her up in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> you go but down and give her treats. Every I do. Once I go while. and feed her a big glass of gin every evening at the end of a long day, and 
yeah it's yeah. it's a really interesting one that yeah i think some of my picks get into that a little bit um i think especially like feeling the loss of your creative self but right. just learning that it it has a new form now it just looks differently yeah than it did before yeah and how how can you express it given mm-hmm. all the other pressures and things going on and yeah there's so much and it's so broad and i i don't want to feel like we're missing something but there's just no way we're going to be able to cover no everything and all the ways that horror can manifest in horror that that motherhood can manifest um, in horror or just the different horrors of you know attempt like like, a infertility journey I mean there's just there's so much and um, I just read I wanted to mention speaking of Jude Ellison I was talking about him earlier I had read this it came from the closet and this is queer reflections on horror movies and you know, he talked about how becoming pregnant was kind of his wake up call for like, I I don't feel comfortable in my body anymore. Like I, yeah, this is, I need to transition. Like I have never felt like everything they're telling me I'm supposed to feel about gestating a pregnancy in this time in my life. Yeah. I mean, I can, I have a lot of empathy for that. Um, I, I, I found pregnancy terrifying in that it gave me the worst body dysmorphia that I've ever had in my life I I, and I still now have days where I look in the mirror and I don't recognize who I am or what I'm supposed to look like um the version of me that I can take a nice selfie of doesn't look anything like the version of me that I actually see um my body changed like structurally changed like my rib cage is wider like mm-hmm. my shoulders are more rounded, my hips are white, like everything about me changed and yeah. at a halfway mark, kind of well, actually no, 30 years in. Um, and that's actually terrifying because you suddenly have to like get used to an entirely new frame. Yeah. Um and and yeah, the the level of like discomfort. I still feel in my own body and it fe- I feel like an alien sometimes. So like, yeah, I completely get that. I completely get that needing to, I think, transform into something that, that makes you feel less alone in your own self. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. There's a, a girl I went to college with and she has think like six or seven kids and um like the few times she's had a baby she'll post like throwback pictures of herself pregnant she says like I love being pregnant and I miss being pregnant and I've never related to anything less no and and actually I'm very I'm the same I had a horrendous pregnancy I was really uncomfortable um I was really big I was just everything went wrong with it that could have gone wrong um I wish that I had had a glowy lovely like I've got friends who are loving every second of being pregnant and and I'm so happy for them. Mm-hmm. Like I would never wish my experience on anyone else. Um, I do wish I'd had a chance at a pregnancy where I had felt less like a sack of pain. Yeah. <laughs> but I just felt like a big blister <laughs> for nine months. It was horrendous. <laughs> I just think it's very unglamorous and you know I had a lot of close friends that were struggling with infertility so I did not right. want to bring my life you don't want to voice pregnancy that, do sucks or it's like right. this is yeah. the one thing they want 
Yeah. And this is what I'm talking about. This is why a lot of women don't speak out about their particular individual experiences, because you're always aware that somebody else is going through a very different journey. But one of the things I learned in therapy and a very important lesson for me was I would always sit down and the therapist would say, okay, so tell me what you're struggling with this week. And I would voice what I was struggling with, but then I would immediately mitigate it and go, but I feel like I'm complaining about this when people have got things so much worse in so many other different ways. And every time I said that the therapist would kind of verbally wrap me (laughs) over the knuckles because (laughs) other people's experiences being horrendous and difficult doesn't invalidate yours and your feelings. You know, everything to do with how you feel and how you're struggling is completely valid in your world and in your life too. That being said, you want to be mindful of people around you who, who are having a hard time, particularly with pregnancy because it's such a a charged, emotionally charged thing. Right. But I, I also, I, I don't think in the right setting that women shouldn't talk about the negative aspects of something that, you know, the prevailing sentiment is still this very old fashioned view of, well, women have been having babies for thousands of years. Just it's normal and natural. Just stop complaining and get on with it. I'm like, well, yes, but women's average life expectancy for thousands of years was vastly lower than men's in many ways because of childbirth and childbirth related conditions Mm. Um, and mental health rates and all these things. Like we need to, just be more open to the discourse I think um and what and I think the way that will help is that if you are feeling like a big old bloated blister like I did you won't beat yourself up so much because you're not enjoying the experience you know because you're not grateful enough like yes I am grateful of course I'm grateful I'm growing a new life in my belly it's just really also really fucking hard and I'm struggling and that's okay yeah and yeah there's a lot more compassion I think we could have uh, on a wider scale if we were all much more comfortable with being able to talk about our individual experiences and that's why I think these kind of books and movies are important in a way yeah and I think there's a lot of just binary thinking that if you that is placed upon motherhood where like if you voice this yeah. that must mean this and it's right like, exactly I can feel angry and dissatisfied or you yeah. know whatever we'll get into with these books that touch upon and still love my child it's not an either or I can be many things all at once and and I find that that is a very common thing for the I guess the without gendering it too much the kind of female experience as I have experienced it is that people often expect you to be one thing or the other Mm -hmm. and it's like well no I can be many things all at once actually and that's just life is nuanced and complex and you know pigeonholes and labels and boxes and all that stuff I've never been a big fan of anyway and yeah, yeah. well I was looking at movies <laughs> and feature motherhood and I was I was trying to watch some and man are they all dark for the most part <laughs> <laughs> yes um I will say I did watch Prevenge came out in 2016 which is a I love dark that film. comedy yes yeah. I was gonna ask you I love that film. Um, I've, I followed, um, it's Alice Alice Lowe, I believe. I followed mm-hmm. her for a while online. She's been kind of a, a regular feature on TV shows and comedy shows over here for a long time. Um, and she's quite uh, sort of vocal on Twitter and, and an advocate for kind of uh, women's rights, particularly women's rights in the film industries and how women are portrayed in films and things. And so, yeah, this, this film was a lovely little dark indie gem which mm-hmm. starts off funny and then really isn't like it's yeah. really uncomfortable in many 
in many ways, but it's essentially her character is a a pregnant woman who is revenging uh, herself upon the people responsible for her husband's death before the child is born. And yeah. like that theme of you tend to, revenge tends to be the the revenge with women tends to be done in a number of ways. It's either kind of um Glenn Close style, like bunnies boiling in a pan, like kind of although God, I root for her in that film so much. <laughs> poor woman. Michael Douglas <laughs> deserved everything he got. But like do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. women in revenge films are either the bad, evil, crazy one getting revenge because they've been jilted or whatever. Or or it's the domain of man, you know? It's you're looking at the big blockbuster action movie where the man gets revenge and like Gerard Butler runs around killing everybody that ever wronged him. But this lovely like moment where there's a, a pregnant woman who feels very righteous about what she's doing, you know, and she's on a mission to seek revenge in a very masculine way, but she sort of does it in quite a feminine way as well. Like it's a really interesting little movie that one like I don't think you're supposed to read too deeply into it like I think it is what it is but I will say yeah it's a great film it's really enjoyable for me to watch as a woman (laughs) in many ways it was I think the lightest fare yeah that I that I watched into this yeah and then the idea that she thinks it's her it's her unborn child telling her that this is right because to be done that's how she's rationalized it and it's so interesting that she's a mother in a film who is not objectively evil and she's not objectively like helpless like the woman is in rosemary's baby like she's she's actually like she's doing something this is how she feels and she's doing something about it and i quite like that she's Mm -hmm. taking control and yeah she's there's action involved yeah well should we talk about some books yes uh, my first pick is Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. We follow an unnamed narrator. She's an artist who is now a full-time stay-at-home parent. Um, she finds it pretty lonely and exhausting. Her husband is always away on business trips, and she feels like she's on the brink of losing her mind. But instead, she finds that she's gained canines, a strange appetite, a new voice, and she believes she might be turning into a werewolf. You read this one? <laughs> I haven't read it, but I've read the the theme immediately uh, <laughs> gets under my skin. <laughs> this book does have so much rage, and I think it really draws that line of like this is my honest like anger at like all these responsibilities that are now dropped onto me. And I think a lot of societal rage and that she's mad that her husband doesn't feel the need to just like pick up the slack. Right. And how empowering it is for her to turn into this werewolf and kind of becoming this animal. She finds that she can dig into her creativity again. She finds that she has more assertiveness to like tell her husband, like, no, I'm going to go here and you're doing this. Right. Like kind of like teen wolf, but uh, they're in a older audience. Like, yeah. Yeah, and it really it touches on the loneliness of being like, you know, a professional to going to like a suburban stay at home mom. Well, that's exactly what comes out in We Need to Talk About Kevin as well, like without jumping ahead too much. Like both women are professionals. They're intelligent. They have their lives set up in a way that 
makes them comfortable and then they're thrust into motherhood and all of that goes away and it's really lonely and I've I've been there a hundred percent like I was a, a marketing manager in a number of like kind of businesses before and I was I went from wearing a nice suit and getting paid regularly and having benefits and talking about grown-up stuff to being covered in sick all day and being on my own and talking goo goo gaga language for days on end without speaking to another adult and and it made me so angry I was really really angry a lot of the time particularly I've been I've been the person who has been at home looking after the baby whilst my husband's been away on business trips and the level of resentment that I felt it I mean, he was working to be like, to be honest, he was working. He wasn't off on a jolly, although every now and then he would text me pictures of like a nice glass of red wine that he was having on the Spanish steps in Rome or whatever. The level of resentment I felt was, it was visceral and all consuming. Cause I was like, well, I'm here. I'm covered in diarrhea. I haven't mm-hmm. washed for three days. The baby's been screaming for hours on end. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and also because women, we don't raise children in a village anymore. You know, we're not, we don't have our families living with us. Not, you know, not, not many women now. And we have friends. Sure. And we might have a baby group to lean on and stuff, but a lot of us are just doing this alone. It's insanely isolating. And I think when you're isolated and alone, you get scared. And when you're scared, you get angry. So it all plays into each other. Oh, it absolutely does. And I think this bridges that gap with what we were talking earlier of like feeling that resentment and fully feeling that rage, but that not meaning you don't. Right. Not you love, love your, your child. child. You know, you wouldn't want it to, well, you would want it to be a different way, Yeah. but you don't regret the decision to be a mother unless perhaps it has been something that you didn't plan for, which is a whole nother section <laughs> of like fiction is like unplanned stuff. Yeah. Um, but like it, you can love somebody and also still feel like you're losing yourself in that relationship, whether it's romantically, whether it's a parent child relationship, whether it's just by default of getting older and discovering who you are a little bit more. Like it's, it's entirely possible to love somebody, but also feel trapped by them. You know, I do have a quote. I think it's kind of long. (laughs) She wanted to tell the girl it's complicated I am now a person I never imagined I would be, and I don't know how to square that. I would like to be content, but instead I'm stuck inside a prison of my own creation, where I torment myself endlessly until I am left binge-eating fig newtons at midnight to keep from crying. (laughs) I feel as though societal norms, gendered expectations, and the infuriating bluntness of biology have forced me to become this person, even though I am having a hard time parsing how, precisely, I arrived at this place. I am angry all the time. I would one day like to direct my own artwork toward a critique of these modern day systems that articulates all this. But my brain no longer functions as it did before the baby. And I'm really dumb now. And I'm afraid I'll never be smart or happy or thin again. I'm afraid I might be turning into a dog. Instead, she said, smiling, I love it. I love being a mom. Yeah. That got me like so much of what she said, that whole fear that you're turning dumb. My God, that's such a real, when you go from having like intellectual conversations with friends over a glass of wine in the pub in the evening about this and that and politics and expressionism and all the rest of it to literally 
teaching your kid ABC yeah. and, and watching the night garden or whatever the equivalent that you guys have like you know I don't know cartoons but like the the world particularly of small babies but actually also small children can be endlessly boring and inane in so many ways and you feel your you can feel your intellectual capacity drain away like you really can feel it just disappear <laughs> off out of your body and it's really sad like it's a muscle that you need to continually train and you don't yeah. get a chance to train it when you're looking after a small child you do later on it yeah. does come back but yeah for that moment in time when all you want to talk about is something like meaningful and intense and instead you've just got to say please eat your sandwich 19 times in a row <laughs> like it's Definitely. so yeah needless to say i absolutely loved this book it is a weird one so i think you just have to know that going in that it's just a book full of rage full of feelings and it's a it's a little weird but I loved it. I would say room temperature. It's nothing really frightening as much as it's like an exploration of these feelings and sometimes the feral thing we need to turn into. That that animalism as well is an interesting one because you do become a bit feral. Like you sort of stop looking after yourself. You, yeah. you, <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you pretty much like scavenge for food without like ever cooking nice things for yourself. Like it's, it's, basically a game of survival in the early days um particularly i think if you're a single mother as well or a single parent oh, yeah um because i think the idea of motherhood and i know this it's contentious but motherhood can also include fathers and i know that sounds weird but i know what i mean by that but like like that that act of caring for mm -hmm. something and that being your sole responsibility um yeah you do go a bit you become a bit of an animal. <laughs> <laughs> that was Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. I think my first pick is going to be... Uh, well, it's going to be The Yellow Wallpaper, um, which is a very... Everybody knows it. It's a classic. Um, it's interesting because I've always kind of really... I studied this book at university and Charlotte Perkins Gilman has always been on my radar as somebody I looked up to. I have since found out as these things happen that a lot of her personal views were quite problematic um i believe she was uh quite a racist individual so i am aware of that now so it, it hasn't changed my relationship with the book but it has changed the way perhaps that i think about the person who wrote it but also i think for the purposes of this interview i'm going to just separate that out for a moment because it is again it's an epistolary small epistolary story which explores the intimate impact of postnatal depression on a woman who is surrounded by men um and surrounded by men who fundamentally misunderstand the nature of her condition so she is very much patronized spoken down to kind of gaslit in a lot of ways and all of that treatment and that kind of patriarchal influence just serves to make her more and more sick um, so she, you know, as a, a, a new mother, she's kind of locked in a room and she stays in that room and she's not really allowed much exercise, much intellectual discourse with other people. She's kept alone and isolated on a strict diet of bed rest. And the end result of that is that she starts to, you know, 
manifest these horrible visions of a creeping woman in the wallpaper. And that woman is obviously kind of her. She she sees herself trapped behind these horrendous, like ugly, scrolling, florid patterns. Um, and it's it's a very short exploration of a slow decline in mental health, um, which I find horrifying on many, many levels, purely because there are so many occasions in this book where she openly states what she thinks she needs for her own mental health, and it's just ignored, outright ignored. Um, there are so many quotes I've got here, like just so many... So many instances where she's just her own needs aren't met because people don't believe that she knows what's good for her. There's one instance where, sort of, in the early days, um, the main protagonist is kind of she's starting to feel unwell. She's they've moved to this kind of new house in the countryside, which it, it looks pretty on the surface, but to all intents and purposes is a prison. You know, she she repeatedly uses imagery and she talks about bars on windows, but also the fact that the trees and the shrubbery surrounding the house kind of feel like prison walls. And there's there's a, a growing sense of disquiet that she tries to have a conversation with her husband about at one point. And she sort of tries to talk to him. And the, the words she uses, she says, the, the quote is, Dear John, he loves me very dearly and hates to have me sick. I tried to have a real earnest, reasonable talk with him the other day and tell him how I wish he would let me go and make a visit to cousin Henry and Julia. And she's basically begging to be let out of the house because she wants to be around other people. Mm -hmm. But he said, I wasn't able to go, nor able to stand it after I got there. And I did not make out a very good case for myself, for I was crying before I'd finished. And that's just like one example of where she's immediately gaslit into like thinking that she's at fault for not being able to be strong enough to go and visit her cousin when actually what he wants is for her to stay put so he can keep a close eye on her and he's completely disregarding what she thinks is good for her own mental health he probably thinks he's being kind and loving and caring but at the same time it's about control and it's about coercion and there's so many it's such a short book like there's so many instances of where a doctor comes and talks to john And neither of them really talk to her. They just talk over her or around her or in different rooms to her. Um, And so as this is unfolding and as she is repeatedly not being heard and becomes more and more isolated, her kind of paranoid fantasies get worse and worse and worse. And it's just... I've kind of personally been in a position where I found it very hard to communicate my own needs, particularly in those early days. And absolutely did contribute to my own decline in many ways you know I'm not saying that I was gaslit or misunderstood because I absolutely wasn't but I found it very very difficult to communicate um, and be my own advocate and that's essentially what's going on here um, and and so for that that instance it's it's quite a horrifying book for me yeah well I mean also that she's blaming herself for showing emotion right at all that she should be taken less seriously because she cried yeah and this whole notion of the time it was written i think it was the 1790s or something like that this whole notion of hysterical women as well was Mm -hmm. was a real thing back then which is another form of kind of entrenched gaslighting where if a woman displays any sort of emotion then she's got hysteria 
you know and and it's like well actually no she's she's justifiably upset <laughs> and angry and feeling out of control and yeah so it's just a, it's a very good example of that slow and she uses the word slow creeping quite a lot creeping women um as a kind of metaphor i think for women in society in general who were just mm-hmm. brought down very low by the expectations and also by the act of just not being heard until they're reduced to these figures who creep around, you know, along the floor and around in the background. And the the kind of final denouement of that whole thing is she does start to creep herself to mimic the the character she thinks she sees in the wallpaper. Um, And her husband kind of comes in and witnesses this kind of act of, I guess, insanity. And he's horrified. And and that's how it ends. And it's like, well, dude, <laughs> you know, you kind of reap what you sow here. <laughs> but it will still be her fault that throughout all of that, he'll he'll have believed he did everything he could have to help her. And, yeah. and it's still her fault. So where would you rate that on the temperature scale? <laughs> oh, I don't know. The, like the physical reaction I get from it makes me feel like it's a cold book but the the intensity of the topic and also how timely it was given when it was written it's it's a hot one (laughs) can it be both can it be like an ice cream baked alaska thing (laughs) oh yeah definitely well my next book is mother thing by ainsley hogarth um this is about a woman named abby who moves into her mother-in-law's house with her husband ralph Um, She expects her mother-in-law to be a mother figure to her after her traumatic childhood, but finds her new mother-in-law is a narcissistic and manipulative woman who sees her as a threat to her son. Um, At the beginning of the story, it starts off after the mother-in-law takes her own life. Um, Ralph, her husband, is depressed and Abby becomes convinced that the ghost of the mother-in-law is haunting the basement. She works at a nursing home and kind of around the same time, she becomes obsessed with an older woman in her nursing home and the idea of her being a mother to Abby and what that could have been like. And um, she will go to whatever lengths to keep that relationship. Oh, there's a lot there. (laughs) (laughs) This is a dark, dark comedy. Uh, it's very funny. It's very voicey, but Abby is absolutely fascinating as a narrator because I feel this way about a lot of books where I'm like, I just want you to go to therapy, honey. Like there's obviously (laughs) things that you need to work through. (laughs) There's so many books like that where you feel like this could have all been solved if you'd just gone to therapy. Like, (laughs) yes, because with Abby, it's very much that she has this mother wound Right. But she keeps looking for replacements for it. She didn't find it with her mother-in-law. No, and you and... need that nurture and you're constantly yeah. seeking. That's very much um, when you look at like TikTok videos of an- anxious attachment styles mm-hmm. versus whatever the other style is. And it all traces back to those parent wounds yeah. where you didn't feel like you a fundamental need was being met as a child. Yes. Yeah, and how it colors everything. Oh, it, it gets so much into that. Like the, the first mother thing that she had was this like dingy couch that she grew up with and she would just lay on it and touch like the same part and that would give her a sense of comfort. And she came to call this couch like a mother thing and she found this like old 50s cookbook in a dump 
and she kind of became obsessed with this like 1950s like idealized like if I'm just the perfect mother and I like feed my husband the perfect meal and like give him a son everything will be perfect everything will be this like 1950s idealized and you're in her head like hearing her thoughts as she um, has this weird way of looking at the world and she's a very funny narrator I had like a quote here that was just um women on daytime murder shows are always strangled or stabbed or chopped up for no reason at all except that they're women I guess and to some men that means they deserve it women are lucky to get shot really I'd rather be shot than strangled thank you son of Sam you were uncharacteristically good to us <laughs> like, I mean, just oh, a dark humor that's very- dark that is that's <laughs> I tell you what, though, that couching those difficult things that you feel as a woman with humour as a way of, like, kind of being able to cope with it more easily is quite chilling in itself, isn't it? Like, yeah, you know, there's, there's, um, I talk about this a lot, but the, the ideal, the kind of misquoted Margaret Atwood quote uh, that um, in relationships, uh, men are scared of being laughed at women are scared of being killed it's that's not the actual quote it's all very much taken out of context but it's that thing that you live with like that fear is constantly there yeah um i wonder how much that fear is heightened as well when you become a mother or when you are in a situation as a child when your mother isn't perhaps doing what they need to with that extra element of fear and vulnerability comes into play that, that then changes who you are as an adult you know like yeah there's a lot there and there's just so many layers to this that like when I finished this book I really sat and stared at a wall for a good, <laughs> like 30 minutes thinking about things because things just keep getting ramped up yeah. and like the old lady at the nursing home the daughter wants to move her to a different nursing home and she's like oh no like we can't let this happen yeah but like yeah. you know in her twisted logic she's like this just can't happen and she tries to talk to the woman's daughter who's like listen, like the, the view you have of my mom was not the mom she was to me. Like, I don't, I didn't have a perfect childhood because she was my mom. And like, I don't know why you're projecting all this stuff onto her. She wasn't this person. Yeah. That's, um, that reminds me of the, um, what's it called? Is it single white female? Yeah. Where again, there's obviously a big wound there, whether it's related to parents or whatever, but she just tries to constantly recreate the relationships she's obviously never had and the friendships that she's never had, but it just comes out in increasingly freaky, toxic ways. Um, yeah. yeah. I had a, a quote here, which kind of gets uh, into her relationship with that. It's like, what if Mrs. Bondi had been my mother instead? What might I have inherited from her? Good things. Maybe I would have wanted to be like her instead of how it is with my mother, where everything I do is to try not to be like her, which is basically the same as becoming her in a way. Yeah. How a shadow of your hand is both your hand and its opposite. Wow. Yeah. That And there's an inevitability as well. It doesn't matter how hard you try. There's always going to be a part of you that turns into your own parents in some way, shape or form, even if yeah. you don't want, even if you go well out of your way to make sure that doesn't happen there is a certain inevitability to it which yeah yeah. um in the gerald's game episode i think it was something sarah said where she's like if you go your whole life and make every decision to not be your parents 
you are still basing every decision on them. Like yes. they are still the main driving force in your life. Who you are absolutely. Life. Yeah. This, this, yeah, that, that gets me, uh, for, for reasons that I probably won't explore here until I've gone through them with a therapist. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Wow. That's, that's, I'm actually a bit speechless just cause it resonates. Yeah. Needless to say, I love this dark little, <laughs> um, little book. I, when I finished it, I thought of the movie May. I think it came out in like 2001. It's kind of the weird. Have you seen that? I haven't, no. No. I think it's just because we're following a protagonist that has a very naive kind of simple narrative of the world and how that translates into her interacting with other people Yeah, and it being kind of like a dark, dark, funny story because of that. Yeah. Um, but I think those would pair well together. Mother Thing and May. I think because they're both protagonists that have just intense loneliness. Yeah, but also have rationalised quite yeah. irrational things in a very simplistic, almost childlike yeah. way because they've perhaps never done the work or been able to do mm-hmm. the work in maturing because they haven't had that example. Um, yeah. So that is Mother Thing by Ainsley Hogarth. My next pick is um, the short story Don't Look Now by Daphne du Maurier. Um this is about uh, something that we haven't touched on yet is um, motherhood when you've lost a child. So when you're no longer a mother, but you sort of, you never stop being a mother um, despite the loss of a child. And it's, uh, it's, so I'm obsessed with Daphne du Maurier. I particularly her short story collections, which for me, I mean, Rebecca is one of my favorite novels of all time, but the short story collections are where she really flexes her muscles in terms of the themes and the conciseness of her writing. And my goodness, she doesn't hold back. I mean, I mean, there's there's quite a lot of stories that deal with things like incest. Um, it just like no topic is off the table for her. But De Maurier understand understood how people worked and she was a big observer of like the human condition and she wrote a lot about interpersonal relationships and so this is a particularly good one um a lot again a lot of her short stories are based on travels that she's obviously had which resonates with me as somebody that's traveled a lot and she obviously was fortunate enough to go most of the way around the world and around Europe as many people did back then when you had money and she then used those experiences to kind of inform her individual stories and this one it's there's also a movie with uh julie christian julie christian donald sutherland which is very good um this is this is a little bit different to the movie but it's about a couple who have just lost a child um in a terrible uh accident in the movie and in the short story i believe he gets sick and or she gets sick and passes away um because again, child mortality kind of a hundred years ago was was much higher. And they the couple are really struggling with grief. Um, they have an existing child who is is in boarding school, as they all were in, in England back in those days. Um, and they decide to leave him in school and go traveling. Um, and they end up in Venice. And whilst they're in Venice, the the mother who is obviously really struggling bumps into this 
uh, unusual couple of older ladies who are twins, and they're um, they're actually psychic twins, and they build an immediate rapport with her, and they start to communicate uh, bad things that are happening, um, and she takes this to heart, and there becomes a big disconnect between her kind of escalating sense of fear and paranoia um, because she's convinced something bad is about to happen and the husband's kind of, you know, don't we have enough things to worry about at the moment? I'm trying to just get through the day and deal with my feelings. And there's a lot of very British button-down repression of emotion and it's about a couple who are struggling to sort of reconnect with each other and they sort of do and there are moments of high romance where they're really into each other and then it's all kind of ripped apart again because the memory of the loss of the child comes back up and it's a really interesting look at a fragile woman who is not dealing with the loss of her child very well and as a result is clinging on to any sort of I guess paranormal influence to um, help her cope um, and the the end of the end of the story is is uh, again it's quite different from the film, but it's uh, basically there's a serial killer running around Venice, killing people. Um, so yeah, it's there's a lot of things at play. It's, it's not like an openly paranormal story, but it sort of is. There's hints of it, um, and really, it's just how it doesn't matter where you are that grief can play out on any stage, like the beautiful city of Venice versus, you know, being at home in a, in a locked room. Um, and that sense of loss and purposelessness as well, which, which like her purpose has sort of been taken away from her a bit. Um, particularly as her other child is older and he's off at school and he's already being cared for there. And there's one point in the story where that child gets sick too. And immediately the panic that comes over her that I'm going to lose another child, which then escalates what what sort of subsequently happens. So, um, it's a really fascinating look at grief and motherhood. I think, um, uh, but just yeah, dealt with in that very British buttoned up way where we're not really allowed to feel anything. <laughs> we're still not. <laughs> it's still a problem today. Um, where would you rank that temperature wise? I would say that's that's a if we're talking about the characters and the exploration of kind of love and familial love and husband and wife relationships and motherhood, that's kind of an uh, a warmer temperature. But if we're talking about like yeah, the warmer temperature. <laughs> Sorry, I totally lost lost track there. <laughs> yeah, you're totally fine. Uh, that's been on my TBR forever. This this short story collection is yes. wild, and and you will fly through it. And again, it's of a certain time. It's of a certain like era where yeah. people of a certain level of society had lots of disposable income, and they travelled, and they were very educated. And it's mostly a lot of people who are educated and travel yeah. a lot. But there's still some incredibly interesting themes and and dealt with and and yeah, there's no nobody writes quite like her. I'm I've just I've got a a novella coming out from Polis uh, later on this year, which is kind of my love letter tribute to De Maurier and how oh, she writes and the things that fine. she writes about. So yeah, I love that. I do like Daphne De Maurier. Yeah. 
All right. My last pick is a 2023 release. It is The Graveyard of Lost Children by Katrina Monroe. At four months old, Olivia Dahl was almost murdered. Driven by haunting visions, her mother became obsessed with the idea that Olivia was a changeling and the only way to get her real baby back was to make a trade with the dead woman living at the bottom of the well. Now Olivia is ready to give birth to a daughter of her own and for the first time, she hears the women whispering. So this does deal with a lot of postpartum um, depression and I think the idea that everyone tells Olivia, that she should be happy, she should be glowing, like this is the best time of your life. And the way that Katrina Monroe writes, I it took me back to that place of like when you're a mom with an infant, and we talked about earlier, you're overwhelmed, like you're dirty, you're sick, like you can't yeah. get your baby to latch, they're not gaining weight, you take them to checkups, and you're like and everything you feels off. like it's your right. fault. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think like, I mean, in this book, she has a supportive partner. And I think having this postpartum depression as kind of this supernatural force was a very interesting and I think good metaphor for it. And I think also that she thinks about maybe connecting with her own mother, who is this like, yeah, kind of true crime figure. Like that's like a thing where like, you know, a podcast did an episode on like her mom. Yeah. But also that her mum has passed down this inherited yeah. like bundle of anxiety and yeah. fear, and like because lo- almost losing a child at that age would would drastically alter your brain chemistry yeah. for the rest of your life. You know, it just would. Um, and how that's been then passed down to her as she becomes a mother herself, and that, that again that theme of inevitability, right? Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. it's just so strong with with stories about motherhood it's like the, the inevitability that we're, we're all going to struggle with the same shit at some point and there's not really much you can do about it i hate that it's so tragic to me like it is i mean i think in a lot of these stories there is well in some of these stories there is like an overcoming or like a you know i learned to put this in the basement and like yeah. now it looks this way like i may not be this but now i'm this yeah um I just thought it was a, a very good metaphor, an interesting exploration. Like I said, the writing really put me back there. So maybe only read it when you're. Yeah, I might to need to. Yeah, I might need <laughs> to be slightly like... older and stronger before I can go there. <laughs> um, but I, I really loved it as an exploration for that. But I remember several times I was reading it and I was like, that's dark. That's, that's very dark. Okay. <laughs> um, so that is The Graveyard of Lost Children by Katrina Monroe do you have any chilling obsessions or things you've been enjoying in horror lately other than my abiding obsession with true crime podcasts which um is something i'm really gonna need to consciously cut back on uh (laughs) because i again the, the kind of the relationship between horror fictional horror and actual real life horror um and in terms of the things that I consume and how they feed into each other. And I think because some of the stuff I write is based on true crime and, you know, whatever, I'm not entirely sure it's very good for my brain, like the level that I am now consuming. Um, And I don't think that things like Netflix and stuff actually help that very much. Um, uh, Other obsessions I have at the moment, um, I am returning very much like I said to the short story as a as a way well partly because I'm finding it very hard to read 
um, mm-hmm. at the moment and I have done since I had a baby. Um, we we probably suspect my kid's old enough now to, to he's in referral for a potential ADHD diagnosis. One of the things that happens when you have a neurodivergent kid um, who also has dyslexia is that the, the prevailing wisdom is you also look at the parents to see if there's anything potentially undiagnosed yeah. there. And the uh, we're all fairly convinced in my circle that I've probably got some quite strenuously undiagnosed ADHD myself. So I've been doing a lot of reading about it and it's interesting that ADHD isn't just a childhood illness. It's actually something you can develop as an adult. Oh, I don't know that. Uh, which I was quite surprised to learn. And also one of the main triggers for ADHD later on in life with women is childbirth, which is really interesting to me. And that all ties in yeah. a lot um, with my current interests. So the long and short of it is as a result, I can't read long things very easily. My focus is extremely difficult to kind of yeah. muster at the moment so audiobooks help but short stories yeah. are my gateway back into reading um and again i've been du- just churning through de maurier um and short story collections so that's a kind of my main obsession at the moment w- when it comes to what i'm consuming i love that i i do love a good short story and like i i understand that my my son has adhd and you know we have the medication and the therapy and everything so yeah, it's a it's a journey. It's a journey. It's a, journey. It's it is, a diagnosis uh... over in the UK is is for children is very long winded and problematic and stressful. Um, not so much for adults, which I feel like is the wrong way around. But yeah. Oh, it's um, the opposite here. Though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that could be a whole nother thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll come back for another episode and we can talk about neurodivergent <laughs> horror. <laughs> well, another tradition we have on this podcast is to ask guests for a final girl song. Yes. Um, and yeah, we were we were chatting about this earlier and I I was I am going to mention the song Labour um that's doing the rounds on TikTok at the moment, which is an absolute earworm that I cannot shake at all. And it's essentially a very angry woman talking about all the fucking hard work she has to do because her bloke doesn't really like see her as anything more than kind of free labor. Um, And she's, she's everything to him. She's his therapist. She's his wife. She's his nurse. She's, you know, it's like, it just, the lyrics are wonderfully written and it's a real thumping song that goes along at a grand old pace. And it's just, yeah, yeah it's kind of my current obsession at the moment. <laughs> like, it's been, it's been a female rage bop on, on TikTok. Right. If a, you can bop along a... to your own rage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm happy, but I'm also really angry yeah. <laughs> just in time. <laughs> oh, man. So where can people find you online? Uh, so I'm, I, I always say this, this is my kind of one liner is that I am liberally splattered across the internet. Um, <laughs> if you type Gemma Amore into Google, you'll find me on Twitter under the handle many little words, the same handle for Instagram, the same handle for TikTok, which I'm slowly learning how to use. Um, I have a website, uh, GemmaAmoreAuthor.com. And I also have a Wikipedia page now, which, which is very gratifying and a little IMDB page. So I am, oh, I'm on Facebook too. I'm, I'm in a number of places. Um, my digital footprint 
will be uncovered in thousands of years time <laughs> by digital archaeologists <laughs> but uh, yeah so right, well thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to me about motherhood and horror thank you for having me thank you and i'll be better organized next time <laughs> oh, i wasn't either <laughs> right quite quite like apropos for the episode my whole week yeah, because i'm trouble. a mother i was looking after a sick kid so my brain is just fried but yeah <laughs> Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod, on Instagram and TikTok at Books in the Freezer, or you can send us an email at Books in the Freezer at gmail.com. And I would like to just add a quick apology um, because even though this episode is a bit longer than usual, um, as we got closer to the end of recording, we both had places to be and we were running out of time. So Gemma did not get to talk about We Need to Talk About Kevin as one of her picks, um, which was something we kept saying at the top of the episode, like, oh, we'll get to it when we talk about it. So just apologies about that. But that happens sometimes. Maybe we'll just have to add that to the schedule for maybe the next time she comes on the show. We'll have to have our official talk about We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lionel Shriver. If you would like to support the podcast, there are a few ways to do that. One of them is to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash books in the freezer. There's a one, three and a five dollar level you can check out all the different perks that come at each level. I think there's also an option to do like a one-time annual payment. And I think that discounts it quite a bit. So check that out. Um, at the $3 level, there is a Voxer group chat um, where we hang out and talk about the movie nights we have every so often. So if that sounds interesting to you, that's patreon.com slash books in the freezer. You can also use the podcast affiliate links that will be listed in the show notes using services like Libro FM and getting a Fangoria subscription or Fangoria merch or, you know, using Amazon, using the link in the show notes all goes to help out the show. Also with Libro FM at the end of the month, it is independent bookstore day. And there's a lot of things going on with Libro FM. I'm sure I will post about it on Instagram and Twitter as it gets closer, but keep your eye on that. And if you've been considering um, getting Libro FM as a gift or for yourself to listen to some audiobooks, I think it's a good time to check that out. And it's always a good time to support a local independent bookstore, but I mean, come on, especially on Indie Bookstore Day, right? And a way to support the podcast without spending any money is to, of course, tell a friend about us, post about us on Instagram, Twitter, but also leaving a review on a site like Spotify or Apple Podcasts is huge. And yes, I do have another five-star review to read. So thank you. Uh, this is from Peace Blossom. It says, great horror podcast, five stars. This podcast ticks all my boxes. Stephanie is a talented host with a lovely voice. She keeps the show moving at a balanced pace, not overly structured or too free for all. I love the guests she has on and the wide variety of subgenres that are touched on. My TBR list grows longer with each episode that comes out. 
and have been reading a lot of new authors and styles that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. I really enjoy the final girl song and chilling obsession traditions. I love how positive this show is in tone too, with the focus on what they like about a given topic instead of dislikes and just the general positive vibes from Stephanie and her guests. Thank you so much for that lovely review. And if you would like to leave a review, you can go on Apple Podcasts, like I said, or Spotify. Thank you so much for those of you who have taken the time to do that. And on Apple Podcasts, it does look like 239 of you have left a rating or a rating and review. So big thank you to all of you. I would love for it to be an even 250. So if, I don't know, 11 more of you could hop on there and just put a few words. You don't have to be as articulate as Peace Blossom was if you just want to say thumbs up or I don't know. Anything like that would be great, but grateful for all of you. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N or on Instagram at that's what she read. And that's that's with two A's. So thank you so much and see you next time on Books in the Freezer. (laughs) 